sipped wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, Lord, what a praise and what a joy and a, a glorious opportunity it is to be in your house this morning with your people worshiping you. I pray that even this morning as we read in the uh, text this morning about your glory that was manifested on this day, we read of uh, a glory, a power that was shown that has never been seen before, but we also read of trouble in this text that even in the midst of your power being manifested before people, there were many who missed the message. Lord, I pray that on this day, on this hour, in this hour, that as we've gathered here to study your word, that we don't make the same tragic mistake that was made all these years ago on the day of your first miracle, let there not be one in this building who misses the message. We give thanks to you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue our study here in the, in the book of John, we've now come to chapter 2, and in the, in the first 11 verses, we're, we're challenged here to, to not miss the message. Though this miracle happens at a wedding it's this is not about a wedding at all and though this uh, there's wine in which the miracle happens uh, it, it pertains to wine the the miracle is not about wine the message is not about wine John has set forth and we've said this time after time and week after week John has written to this entire book to make clear the message about Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of John to, for us to learn more about him, to hear about all that he has done so that it may cause in each and every one of us, if you do not believe, that it may cause in each and every one of us to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that through him you may have life through his name. That is the purpose of everything that's recorded in this book. Therefore, it must be the approach in which we take when we read about this first miracle. I want to first take this overview that says that if this is uh, written for us to understand who Jesus is, then we must first approach these first 11 verses all struck at the power that rests in Jesus Christ. Then we must be all struck. I mean, to perform a miracle as he did there. I mean, the argument aside about the elements that's being brought forth here, there on this day, Jesus arrived at a wedding and turned water to wine. He arrived here on this day 
and made something that it was not, something that it should not have been. On this day, he turned water in the line, into wine. But the people shouted, not only did he turn water to wine, but he saved the best for last. Hear me now. When we apply this to the miracle that he is, when we apply this to the miracle that he did, not that he is, when we apply this to the miracle that he did, we must first step back and say, what power rests in Jesus? And then as we step back and we say, um, from the mile high view, so to say, and we begin to apply this to our life. This is the same testimony that we have in our lives, and this is exactly what happens when you encounter Jesus. He takes something that you were not and makes you something that you should not be. Even more, when Jesus encounters us in our lives, when we repent of our sins and place our faith in him, he makes us something better than we ever ought had been. That is the power that is in Jesus. I tell you that on this day, on the day, even in my life, on the day that I met Jesus, I was married already, but after Jesus entered into my marriage, he made it so much sweeter. Listen, I was, I was alive, alert. I was living in the world. But on the day that I met Jesus, he made my life so much sweeter. He made my life so much better. You might read books that help in your marriage. You may read books that deal with drugs, but you have not experienced the changing power of how your life can truly be transformed until the day you have met Jesus. On this day, transforming, changing power had been put on manifestation. It was made manifest. It was exposed to the people's eyes. It was right before them. He turned water to wine. I mean, this is an amazing miracle in and of itself. He turned water into wine. But, you know, th this is what troubles me here, even in the society in which we live today. John doesn't set out here to say, let me tell you about Peter. He doesn't sit here to magnify Mary. He, he doesn't sit here to magnify James. He sets to shout from the rooftop about a miracle that Jesus did. There's too many religions today, false religions, false hopes, that spend much time magnifying people in whom Scripture does not magnify. Much time lifting up people in whom Scripture does not lift up. I'm troubled when I go door knocking or when I encounter people and they say, well, I've talked to St. Peter and I've prayed to St. Matthew and I've prayed to Sister Mary. I'm troubled. Listen, thanking Mary, praising Peter or thanking James is like being on a ship going through icebergs and after you get news that you've safely made it through the icebergs it's like sending a message to the kitchen staff and telling them thank you for navigating us through safely it just makes absolutely no sense safety alone salvation alone transforming power alone rest in jesus christ so on this day he turned water into wine Chapter 2 starts off letting us know that 
There's only one who can change your life and only one encounter that we can have that will change our life. But let's look at our text uh, again here on a, on a deeper level. This chapter here is kind of a transition chapter in which we see that something ends and that something also begins. Here in verse number one. In the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. This third day is a, a reference uh, to what we studied last week. This is the third day since Jesus called Philip and Nathaniel. Three days have passed since the moment in which we've ended in chapter number one. And he says, it's, it is in the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. It has been three days since this time, and this area in which he's speaking of here is Cana of Galilee, which is believed to be nine miles north of Nazareth. And just a little historical information for you, that place is uninhabited today. But in this time, just nine miles north of Nazareth was Cana of Galilee. I draw attention to the fact here that this will be the last time since John chapter 1 that John will put a time stamp upon the movements of Jesus in his ministry. We've seen that in the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And here in John chapter 2, we see that, and it has been three days since the moment the Lord called Philip and Nathaniel. But understand that this is not because things have become foggy in the apostle's mind. It isn't because things are getting foggy that we're going to leave the sequence here. We must understand that we have transitioned to a new part in which John is setting forth to explain to us about Jesus' ministry. We have to take into the thought process what John says Thought process of what John says in John chapter 21 and verse 25. He says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did in which, in which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. So when John transitions from John chapter 1 to chapter 2, we leave the sequence of dates. We, we leave the time stamps because we're moving into the part of Jesus' ministry in which many miracles are going to be done. But there is not enough paper in the world, as John will put in John chapter 21, to fully write down all that Jesus has done. So here in this verse, he sets out in chapter 2, John changes and John says, of all the miracles that Jesus has done, John has set out to give us eight miracles. That's all the apostle John records for us. He sets out to give us eight miracles that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Now, as we said, these miracles that John records, why does John record them? Because of the key that unlocks the door. So that he is further emphasizing what he says at the end. Why these eight miracles? Why is he even taking time to write a record of these eight miracles? So that people might see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that through him 
they may have life through his name. This is the purpose that John sets out to record these miracles for their validation. It is even more that John brings into perspective here this indisputable truth that is argued. By John bringing us from what we've seen in chapter 1 to chapter 2, it brings us to this indisputable truth that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is indeed also Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They are the same. They are not separated. This is further proof that all that John the Baptist has said in chapter 1, all that Jesus has said in chapter 1, and that all that the Apostle John has said in chapter 1 is true, and it is made manifest that we said in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we went to verse 14, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here on this day, the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of the Apostle John is made manifest and made, uh, is, clarity is given to this, that it is indeed the great truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and it is put on display when he performs this miracle which has never been done before and never been done since. Through this Miracle, all people are brought to an understanding that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. Now, understand this. There's tragic news in this 11 verses. There are people who miss the message. There are people who see the miracle and miss the message. They praised the miracle and missed what it meant for them. Understand that in the world in which we live today, there are people who proclaim that they are deity, that they are Jesus Christ, even in our world today. People who proclaim they're the Messiah. There's this man named, I took, wrote some of them down, Henry Cristo of Brazil, Moses Hillawan of South Africa, Viserion of Siberia, David Shaler of England, Mitsuo of Tokyo, Bupedi of Zambia, Alan John Miller of Australia. The list is on and on of people who proclaim that they are Jesus Christ, who proclaim that they are the Messiah. And even more tragic, there are people that follow them today. These aren't people of time past. These are people of times present. But what separates them, where the rubber meets the road? You see, anybody could make such a claim. Now, we understand historically that they couldn't even, they couldn't even validate themselves to be the Messiah because there's no proof of their lineage, right? But understand that even on top of that where the rubber meets the road is that in Christ Christ manifested that inside of him he showed that there was supernatural power inside of him that only belonged to God matter of fact the power that would be shown forth in these miracles would be so so 
overwhelming that when we get to chapter 3, there's going to be a Pharisee there who we know well, and this Pharisee who's going to see this miracle, and he's going to say, indeed, only one who did these miracles, only one who performed such a, a miracle, they must be that a person who did these miracles is a person that God was with them. So our text again brings us to this miracle. And we see first the setting of the wedding. In the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Now this portion of the text offers a lot of speculation. There's a lot of thought processes by commentators. But it is believed that this wedding would have been someone close to Jesus, maybe possibly someone in Jesus' family, maybe a relative. And the reason that many believe this is first is that Jesus was invited to the wedding and also not only was Jesus invited to the wedding, but Mary was invited to the wedding. On top of that, we all can understand this. If you've had any responsibility with cooking or preparing for a wedding, it was seen that um, for us who, for uh, let's just say for men, I'm, some of you cook, Brother Bob's the only exception I see here. Oh, Jason cooks. Don't try to throw that in there. Oh. No, the, uh, but most of the time when we go through the line, when we have our dinners over here, I think it's safe to say that most of us walk through the line, we scoop out our macaroni and cheese, so we scoop out our mashed potatoes, and we don't all of a sudden panic saying, how is, how is more going to get in here? We, we get our portion and go home or go to our table. But yet in our text here, the kind of the implication is, is that there was a situation that showed up and there was a shortage and who knew that the shortage was coming and who was concerned about the shortage? It was Mary. So this is kind of a belief that it could have been someone in Jesus' family. Even if it wasn't someone in Jesus' family, it was a close enough relative in which Mary was involved in the catering and the supplying and the preparation of food. Even more, we see this, that um, and we know this throughout all ages. People want their weddings to be perfect, right? That's everybody wants to have a perfect wedding. I wanted to have a perfect wedding. I married a perfect bride. The, uh, and uh, it, everything went well, but our chicken was burnt at our reception. I mean, it was edible, but it was burnt now. And, you know, when we did Evan's wedding, uh, when we was doing his vows, every time I looked up, Evan was wider and wider and closer and closer. We, we just did a wedding, a, was like a month ago, we're standing there. The wedding's supposed to start at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And as I'm standing there, the bride and none of the bridesmaids are there. Well, the reason they didn't get there till 2.45 was because they were stuck in an elevator. And we were standing there in Alms Park up at the front waiting for people to get there. Bad things happen. People want weddings to be perfect. But as we laugh at those things, and they're funny, we're understanding, we're putting this in the perspective of American culture. In order to understand this miracle, you have to put aside American culture first and kind of enter into the Jewish culture. This was no laughing matter to run out of wine. This was no laughing matter at all. Matter of fact, you know, 
today in our society, when we have a wedding, it's done within an hour or two. But in their society, in Jewish society, the wedding would go on for even up to a time of a week. I mean, marriage was so protected and so honored that even in the betrothal period, I mean, you was, you was, you was already it. You were married to them. In their eyes, there was, it was nothing to be broken. Understand even more that this is how serious it is. Now, wine is viewed as a time of celebration in the Jewish culture. But if you was to botch your wedding, and if someone was to arrive, because this is the outlook on it, the husband, the soon-to-be husband would have six months to a year to prepare for this time of the wedding. If he was to botch this wedding, if people were to run out of wine, it was so serious that you, under Jewish law, it could, you could enter into a lawsuit against the bride and groom. That is serious. And that's not just from a commentator. Every commentator I read stated that and the Jewish law in which that could be found. This is a serious matter. And I think when you, and I think if you don't take that into context, how serious of a matter it is, you may end up confused why Jesus would meet this need. But in this situation, this, this wine was not so one could be a, have a blubbering mess, but it was a time of uh, celebration. But the secret, so the think it's so serious that a lawsuit could be filed is the key to understanding. Now, there was a wedding a few weeks ago that we went to, and it was a relative of mine that uh, the pastor of a local church here stood in front of the church and referenced this text and said that Jesus understood what it meant to have a great time of booze and parties because he turned water into wine. If you take that from this context, you have misinterpreted scriptures. That's not what this is about. Even more, when we, we see this as Mary comes to Jesus, and we can, you can really feel the grief and the, the fear that has gripped Mary in verse number three. And when they wanted wine. You can just stop there. Don't need, you don't even have to read it from that. This is Mary, Mary explaining to Jesus what's going on. She came to Jesus and she's telling him, and people are coming forward. And when they're coming, they're bringing their cups. And when they dip their ladle in there, and when they wanted wine, there was no wine. This is Mary explaining to him. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. You can hear the distress in her voice. I imagine being in charge. I drive Julie crazy in things that pertain to me, nothing at all. Her and Sister Green and all the ladies, when we had our last meal, I walk over there like, do we got enough food? Get out of here. We know what we're doing. But, you know, there's, there's something inside of you that turns worrying that you ain't going to have enough food to feed the people that you're responsible for feeding. The distress is kicked in here. And, but listen, understanding that, understanding every miracle that Jesus Christ did, every miracle he did was always to meet a need, period. This was a distressful situation that Jesus would meet the need of. When he healed the blind, he would meet the need when he 
cured the demon-possessed man. He met a need when he fed the hungry. He met a need when he calmed the storm. He met a need. This need that was met is no different than any other miracles. The miracle that the Lord did here prevented them from experiencing social outcome. It prevented them from turning a beautiful day of a union to turning into a lawsuit. Also, notice this. I don't think this should be overlooked. Don't overlook this. I don't go to casinos because I don't want people to think that I'm implying that it's good to go gambling at casinos. I don't go to bars because I don't want people to think I'm implying that it's good to go to bars. But also in the same context that we have here, Jesus going to this wedding implies that God honors marriages. It implies that God honors this union. And him arriving there also gives a sense of approval that this is a good thing that's happening here. Marriage is a good thing. It is a God-honoring thing. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Now, we see the situation there. They have no wine. But also... I found this very interesting that they have no wine, but find it interesting that Mary went to Jesus about this. What adds this into perspective is verse number 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So we have this distressing situation that Mary's in and that they have no wine. Yet Mary goes to Jesus, and yet up to this point, Jesus has not done any miracles yet. Yet Mary still goes to him as if he is going to answer this problem. I found this interesting in the aspect because most people believe at this point that Joseph was already dead. Joseph we don't read about even all the way up to the crucifixion. We don't read of Joseph at any time. Yet we see here that Mary at this point, we don't have the recording, I guess we don't have the recording of what was said when Joseph died, but my point is, is that if Jesus didn't heal Joseph and keep him alive, I find it interesting that Mary approaches him and says, we have no wine, and it speaks of it in a manner that she expects Jesus to do something about it. Now, maybe in the context of you know, over the last week, maybe Mary had already heard the news that what John the Baptist had said, that this is the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. Maybe she had already heard the news. Maybe she had already heard about Jesus beginning to walk. Maybe she had heard about the light shining down from heaven and God saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Maybe she's heard of all of these things. And this is why she comes to him at this moment. But look at this unique exchange that we see in verse 3 and 4. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, I, I want you to, I'm going to read it again. See if you can just grasp this. 
Jesus saith unto her mother, uh, saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, when Jesus says unto her, says unto her, woman, don't take this as disrespectful. I know many of us, you know, we cringe at the first pass because we know if we'd have called our mother a woman, she'd have knocked us in the next week. But that's not what's being said here. This is actually in English, if you was to put this in an English term, it's the same as saying ma'am. But there is a clear explanation given here. The explanation that's given here even more is to say that Jesus is stepping forth and saying that there is a different time, there is a different relationship in which Mary is appealing unto. Mary didn't come unto her and say, son, Jesus knew exactly what Mary was asking of him. Mary was asking of Jesus to manifest the glory that she knew rested in him. And because Jesus understood the request of Mary, he approached her and communicated with her as her Savior. This is the understanding. Even more, when we see here in our text, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come, meaning the hour in which he should be fully revealed. But look at Mary's response. Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is yet to be revealed. My hour is not yet come. So Jesus tells her, what do, you, what, what do I have to do with you? What, I, what do I have to do with this situation? Mine hour hasn't yet come. My time isn't yet come. After Jesus says that to Mary, Mary doesn't respond to Jesus. She looks at the servants and says, hey, whatever he says, do it. And leaves. This is kind of an interesting exchange that we don't understand more about. But it's, it's interesting to see this exchange that she puts this before the Lord. And so in verse number five, his mother saith unto the service, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. She anticipated and believed that Jesus would that Jesus could meet the needs of this situation. But we cannot understand the distress of this situation unless we understand all the things that happened in times past. We have record that she wanted Jesus to intervene. Look at our text again. In verse number six. And there were six, and, and there were set, there are six water pots of stone after the manner of purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. I think what I read was that's like when Jesus turned this water into wine, that's somewhere between 130 to 140 gallons of wine. Even more, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear it unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted that the water was made wine and knew not whence it was. But catch this. But the servants which drew the water knew. 
And the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of miracles. Did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Now, I'm not going to give you an education about times past living in the world. But for people who want to stay, set out to say that this is a testament that Jesus had a all-out party, and this was doing this for the drunkenness uh, of the people. First, understand that if any of you have been involved in that foolishness before, if you are intoxicated, you do not understand that they save the best for last. You don't get that. It does, you reach a point where none of that stuff matters. But yet the people at the feast understood that the best was for last, that the best came last. Second of all, understand this, that in the aspect of Jesus turning water to wine, it, it, men has set out to abuse everything that God has created. We see that, whether it's wine, whether it's sex, whether it's anything else that God has given men to enjoy, men have found a way to abuse it and make it something that does not glorify God. So in the aspect of Jesus turning water to wine, it's not the aspect of God was promoting their behavior in the sense that, I guess we, I didn't want to go down this road, but he turned water to wine. Wine oftentimes was used with water to dilute it, whatever, whatever aspect. But I don't think that negates the fact that Jesus turned water to wine here. Second of all, I don't think that there's a promotion for people to be drunk. Third of all, men will always abuse that which God has given them for their benefit, period. It's just the, it's the, it's the damage from the fall. But notice this, what happens here. And after this, in verse number 12, well, let me back up to 11. This is the beginning of the miracles did, Je did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. That is the worst verse of chapter 2. That here in this moment, in verse number 9, we see that the servants who brought the water pots to Jesus, they knew, they knew that Jesus turned water to wine. They were the ones that was there. They, they, they seen this. They knew it. Yet in verse number 12, that was not enough testament that when Jesus departed, they did not become disciples of Jesus Christ. They did not become followers of Jesus Christ. They missed the message. And I think that's the great tragedy of even today when we read this miracle that happens. Oftentimes we say little things like, 
Yeah, Jesus turned water into wine. It was a great miracle. He met the needs. But, but what did it do to you? What did that message mean to you? He turned water to wine. Never have been done before. Never to be done again. In him rested all power of heaven. What did you hearing that message do to you? What is this? John sets out to bear forth the record. What I find interesting is that John records this miracle believing that it will impact the people who read it, that it will impact the people who hear it, and that it will stir up in them a desire not only to follow Jesus, a reality of who Jesus is and the reality of why Jesus is here. But don't just say the miracle that Jesus turned water to wine and not apply it to yourself. That is the great mistake. Don't marvel at the miracle and then not be the, let him be the one that you're following. Don't marvel at the miracle and then follow up with the profession that I must follow him. Look at the miracle that my Savior did. Don't lift up the miracle that he's done in your life when you say that Jesus saved your soul and then don't follow him. You're no different. We are no different. We are no different than the people in verse 9 who knew he did a miracle and didn't follow him. That's exactly where we are. Don't miss the message. The entire message of these eight miracles that John records time after time through different perspectives, through different points of views, through different miracles will call for the believer, even the believer, to not miss the message. It calls for the believer to take a deeper faith and trust in the Lord. How do we know that? Verse 9, or no, verse 11. In the, the, this beginning of the miracles, did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. And what does it say about his disciples? And his disciples believed on him. It was like, that's our Lord. <laughs> that's our Savior. That's our Messiah. That's who we're following. Our Savior can do that. Our Savior can meet needs. Our Savior can help people. That's our Savior. They believed on him even further. And even though it's 2,000 years later, and we're here in the month of December of 2023, when we open our Bibles to John chapter 2 and read the first 11 verses of the first miracle that Jesus did in the Cana of Galilee, it should cause us to believe on him even more. It should cause us to deepen our faith. It should cause us to trust him all the more as we're reminded of the power that rested in our Savior. And it also is a further testimony, testimony of the undeniable truth and the inseparable, inseparable truth that Jesus Christ was both in flesh and he was also the Son of God. They were one. They were not inseparable. He was 100% man and he was 100% God. And if you're saved, hallelujah, when you get to heaven, you can ask him to explain that to you, and he will be the best to be able to explain it to you, better than I can. But we stand today understanding that our Lord 
did a miracle on this day to meet the need of people, not to raise up a bunch of drunken people, but to meet the needs. It is a miracle that is to say that Jesus actually cares about us in a social manner. He actually cares. This is, an, this is a different miracle in the aspect of the blind or the aspect of the demonic. This is, this is a different view of Jesus. And it invites, provides a, a grander picture of just how much Jesus cares about his people. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we give thanks to you for this opportunity to be in your word, Lord, and uh, to go through this study here in the book of John. Lord, I pray that as we turn page through page, we're constantly encouraged, we're constantly strengthened, our faith is deepened as we take a fresh look at the miracles that you did as we... Uh, or find ourselves deeper rooted in all that you've done for your people. Lord, I pray that in all things, Lord, we marvel and be awestruck about all that you've done, not only in times past, but in times present. You're still working miracles today. We give thanks to you for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen.